0: Well, this morning we're going to continue a brief study in a portion of Colossians, specifically a portion of Colossians chapter 3. And while this isn't technically part 2 of last week's sermon in practical terms, it actually is because the Apostle Paul is continuing a very similar thought. Last week's verses were stating behavior. We covered verses 8 through 11. We're stating negative behavior. Behavior within the body of Christ that we were to put off, that shouldn't characterize us. Last week's message was don't do these things. The text this morning is actually telling us what to put in place of those negative things. What we should put on, what we should do. Paul today will show us principles that if we actually apply them will make life in the body of Christ here at Lakeside the comforting, unifying experience that God intended. If each of us commits to obeying the truths that we learned, Lakeside, as a body of believers, will be a paradise. A place where not only we would enjoy unprecedented fellowship and joy as we were together, but a place where others who visit would see the body of Christ in operation as Jesus intended. I read these verses last week, but I'm going to re-emphasize them. God's purpose and plan for us as his children are not really a mystery. In John seventeen, eleven, he said, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. And Paul in Romans Chapter 15 beginning at verse 5 says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The ideals that undergird those verses are really the same ideals we'll be studying again this week. Paul was writing to believers who in many respects were doing well but he understood from personal experience that even when you're doing well life in the body of Christ is still a struggle. We still have this flesh that works against us. Paul said in Romans chapter 7 beginning of verse 18 familiar verses for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh for the willing is present in me but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want I do not do But I practice the very evil that I do not want. That's the struggle for each one of us. And the standards before us today that we're going to cover are very difficult. They're very high. They're very lofty. But they are attainable because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Now, I want to be clear up front. I think Lakeside, in many respects, does very well in these areas. But I'm sure each one of us will recognize areas where we need to personally repent and strive to walk in greater obedience. Even where we're doing well, I don't doubt Paul would exhort us as he did to the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians four one. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you and the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. So I pray that we will excel still more in fostering unity in the body of Christ, the oneness, the one heart, the one mind that God intends for us. So as we walk through verses 12 to 14, we're going to see three aspects, but it's basically the entire outline is fostering unity in the body of Christ. Fostering unity in the body of Christ. And the first point is this, view others in the most favorable light possible. View others in the most favorable light possible. In verse 12, the apostle Paul says this, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. It's interesting because Paul has very specific things for us, behavior that we're to put on, but before we even get to those, he says in a few words some profound theological truths that we shouldn't gloss over. He's already said, and we read this morning in in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed then you will also be revealed with him in glory. These are profound truths and he alludes to something here that impacts everything we do and it impacts how we interact with other believers. He's told us that the old man, the old self, should be dead. We have a new self that we should be creating. In fact, our words today are going to tell us what the new self looks like but he specifically refers to us as those who have been chosen of God. How you view yourself matters greatly. It matters how you live your own life, but it also matters how you interact with others. In fact, most of our sinful interactions with other believers are caused by our inflated view of ourselves. We don't take seriously... Paul's words in Romans 12, the beginning of verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. I'm going to talk about this more later, but the reality is most of the time we sinfully respond is because we didn't get something we think we deserve or we weren't treated the way we believe we should be treated because we're pretty special. We think so. We look in the mirror and think that. Deep down, we like ourselves quite a bit. We know better. But in each one of us, there's a little bit of the attitude of the Pharisee who Jesus talked about in Luke 18.11. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. If we're not careful, we can come to church and we can view other believers like this tax collector. But when we think of the doctrine of election, which is what our being chosen actually references, the attitude of look how good I am has to go away. We're not chosen by God because we are better than all those other people. Romans 3.10 says, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. That includes you and me. In fact, the Bible makes clear over and over that we weren't saved because we cleaned ourselves up and God looked down and said, hey, that's a good one. I'll pick him. We were saved in the midst of our sinfulness. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you look around the room at all the other believers here at Lakeside, we all have one thing in common. We are all sinners before a holy God who he would be justified in sending to hell for our sin. But praise the Lord that he chose us and he set his love upon us because the other common thing we have is that we've been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. God reached down and turned us from our sin. We didn't go looking for him. He came for us. John 4 10 and I'll read it multiple times today and this is love not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins the point of all this is when we live with other believers at times we have and we'll talk about this more things that legitimately annoy us bother us but if we remember that we are all chosen by God takes down some of our pride. We didn't earn God's love. We did nothing that makes us more deserving than any other sinner. 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9, Paul says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me His prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. As we're looking into these heart characteristics that we're supposed to exhibit toward one another, it's helpful to remember that the people next to you, those sinners, are just like you. We were all running away from God. We were all his enemies, and God chose To set his love upon us. It's a great starting point for thinking about all of that we're talking about today. We don't deserve what God has given us. Paul emphasizes further the results of God choosing us. And again, it helps us have the right perspective as we look at other believers, particularly the ones that at that particular moment we're not happy with. He says, So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. Now, I realize we're to be holy as God is holy, and most of us don't feel holy because we have that struggle that Paul's talking about. But here, Paul is specifically talking about the fact that we are holy because of what God's done. We are set apart. 1 Peter 2 9, I think, captures the thought that Paul is talking about. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We sang that this morning. Not only are we set apart holy, but we're beloved by God. He set his love upon us. I read it and I said I'm going to read it again and I'm going to read it again. 1 John 4.10 And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God chose you and set you apart and he loves you. And he also chose that Christian who annoys you who's also holy and beloved. And that Christian who bothers you. And that Christian who doesn't do things the way you do them. And that Christian who just won't listen. He set them apart. He loves them. Are they sinners? Yes. Can they be frustrating? Absolutely. Do they do things you don't like? Undoubtedly. But all those things apply to you as well. Just sometimes we don't see it. And despite all of this, God chose you and he chose them. And because of God's work in you and in all the believers around you, God expects us to reflect certain things. So he continues on, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Again, Paul's talking about what the new self looks like. Last week, we looked at the fact that we put off Certain behaviors and the imagery that was used in the language was of putting off dirty, spoiled clothes. The kind of clothes that you'd never put on again, they'd be thrown away. Here he's telling us what to put on to replace it. The dirty, smelly garments were anger and wrath and malice and slander and abuse of speech. And here's the antidote here's what we should exhibit instead of those negative things. He begins by saying, put on a heart of compassion. Really, all of these issues are of the heart. But he's talking about us having this attitude towards other believers, a disposition that is compassionate, an attitude of pity and mercy towards others. You feel for them. You understand that no doubt they're going through trials and you care and have concern in your heart. Really, Paul is telling us to to reflect the character of God. God said in Exodus 34, the beginning of verse 6, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious. We're supposed to have that attitude towards others. We weep when they weep, but we also have pity and mercy That maybe there's something going on in the life of that person that we don't know about. He also tells us to put on kindness. Really is seeking the good of others. It's closely related to compassion. If you have a heart of pity and mercy towards people, you want what's good for them, what's best for them. The Good Samaritan is a great illustration of this. Others could walk by somebody who was hurting. The good Samaritan showed with his actions compassion. In Luke chapter 10 verse 33 and following, but a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him and when he saw him he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds pouring oil and wine on them and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Kindness shows itself in a readiness to help others because you care about them and their needs and you'll do it even if it inconveniences you or costs you something. Again, God showed us kindness. We show it to others. The first part of Romans eleven twenty two. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you, God's kindness. As with several of these characteristics, it's one of the fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Meaning we have no excuse. We're indwelt by the Spirit of God. We can produce the fruit of the Spirit. Paul continues on, put on humility. He means a true humility. Not faking it, not a false pretense, but genuinely looking around at the body of Christ at Lakeside and thinking all the other people are more important than you. They're not here to serve you, but you have a heart that says, how could I serve them? Jesus described himself as humble in heart. And I think Paul expressed this simple idea of put on humility and what it looks like in Philippians 2, 3, and 4. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. The humble person isn't looking around at others thinking, Lord, I thank you I'm not like them with all their problems. But a humble person understands where they really stand before the Lord. Luke eighteen thirteen. but the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner's. I think the idea of humility is permeates Scripture and it's expressed by Jesus well in a parable. I won't read it for time's sake, but sometime go look at Luke 14, verses 7 to 11. And Jesus told a parable about picking the best seats. He said, don't pick the best seat because somebody more important might come in and you'll get humiliated. And he ends it in verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Paul continues, put on gentleness. Some versions translate this as meekness. Has the idea of being willing to endure hardship, to suffer rather than to inflict hardship. Deferring to others when you might be expected to retaliate. I think John MacArthur summarizes the principle very well. He says this, quote, It is not weakness or spinelessness, but rather a willingness to suffer injury instead of inflicting it. The gentle person knows he is a sinner among sinners and is willing to suffer the burdens other sins may impose on him. Again, this is also the fruit of the Spirit. This isn't someone who's concerned about having his rights protected or vindicated, always wanting everyone to think the best. This person knows that I'm a sinner just like the sinner that did me wrong. And he's willing to keep the peace rather than insist on his personal rights. Paul says, put on patience. You can see all these things share a common theme, not just the fact that many of them are fruits of the Spirit, but rather all of this has to do with not lashing out at others. This was closely related to gentleness. A person with patience has self-control, will restrain his emotions, especially when he's been injured, especially when she's been offended. One of my favorite commentators describes it this way, It denotes that long-suffering which endures wrong and puts up with the exasperating conduct of others rather than flying into a rage or desiring Vengeance. Again, these are principles Paul's taught elsewhere. Again, chapter 4 of Ephesians, beginning at verse 1, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I hope as we have all these together, you can see why I... Mentioned that we should view others in the most favorable light possible. I could say that just for no other reason that God chose to set his love upon them and we're going to spend all eternity with one another. Think the best of them, not the worst. Other Christians are going to disappoint you. They're sinners just like your sinners. We blow it. We don't always put our best foot forward. But a believer walking by the Spirit, one who desires to be like Christ, doesn't see other believers as an enemy or as a nuisance or as people to be abandoned and forever banished out of my circle of influence. They see other believers as also chosen by God, also set apart by God as holy, also beloved by God, and they're willing to think the best and not always assume the worst. It requires us to slow down and think through every situation. We don't ever have to justify or tolerate sin in the sense of approving it. But maybe someone's gone through a horrific week. Maybe they've had a horrific circumstance. Maybe they've not treated you well, but maybe it's not about you at all, but they're struggling with life in general. That's where compassion and kindness and gentleness and patience comes in. We think the world is about us and so we're easily offended when the reality is we should have more concern with what might be going on in their lives and can we come alongside them to help? Speaking of love, and I'll read this in full later, but Paul says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Rather than being quick to take offense or carrying a grudge, See other believers as God sees them. Chosen by Him, set apart by Him, and loved by Him. These are challenging words. But I think the words of verse 13 are even more challenging. And if we can have the hard attitude of verse 12, then what he says in verse 13 becomes more manageable. Fostering unity in the body of Christ. The first point was view others in the most favorable light possible. Second, be quick to forgive when others hurt you. Be quick to forgive when others hurt you. Paul's very direct. Verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. As with all of the Bible... Paul's dealing with real life. He understands that even though Christians shouldn't hurt each other, Christians shouldn't sin against each other. We do. We still sin against each other. But Paul's making it clear. We're identified with Jesus Christ. We put on godly conduct and that causes us to respond differently to others when they offend us. He says, bearing with one another we put up with other sinners because we're sinners. We don't cut off people just because they've exasperated us or offended us. They have faults, they have shortcomings, they have weaknesses. But as those chosen by God, set apart, and loved by Him, we're willing to endure. In fact, we must endure with them to love them anyway. Paul says this in Romans 12, beginning at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. That's bearing with one another, not retaliating, not lashing out. But it goes beyond just enduring it and tolerating it. We must actively forgive offenses against us. Paul says, and forgiving each other whoever has a complaint against anyone. Love can't keep a record of wrongs. I don't want to put us on the spot and ask us how many of us still are holding a grudge against somebody because of something that happened weeks ago or months ago. Or even years ago. Forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone. We must be quick to forgive one another. Not once in a while. Not when we feel like it. But always. No matter what. What's interesting is it's clear there is a valid complaint. Whoever has a complaint against anyone. Someone is genuinely offended. This isn't imaginary. Someone actually sinned against someone. The complaint is valid. But it doesn't matter. Because the believer understands they've been forgiven. The believer understands that they love their brother or sister in Christ. And they want to be patient and kind and humble and gentle and forbearing. So when the offense happens against us, we're supposed to remember what God did for us. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. This teaching is hard and it's tied up to our absence of humility. We are offended. We want justice. They should pay for what they did. They shouldn't get off scot-free. Everybody should understand I'm innocent. We want justice. We want our rights. But that's not biblical. That's fleshly. In Galatians 5, the deeds of the flesh are listed. Verses 19 and 20. Pay particular attention to the end of verse 20. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. None of that should be the part of the body of Christ, of believers' interactions with one another and yet we understand because we're sinners it happens all the time. Paul is ultimately telling us to view the offenses against you even when they're legitimate offenses. View them as God views your offenses against him. Forgive them quickly, unconditionally. Now, I realize how hard this is, but this teaching is so consistent and so prevalent that there's no loopholes. There's no way to get around it. In the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, part of it is, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And Jesus explains in verse 14, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. It's really an attitude, are we in the faith or not? Okay, okay, you convinced me, so I'll give you one shot. Maybe even two strikes, but three strikes, you're out, we're over. There's got to be a limit to forgiveness, isn't there? Be careful. You don't want to, with your heart, put limits on forgiveness that causes you to accuse Jesus of lying. In Matthew 18, beginning at verse 21, familiar words, Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. What he really means is there's no limit. You forgive and you forgive and you forgive again. It's interesting that right after this, Jesus told a parable of a man who begged for mercy. It's too long to read as part of this. But you can find it in Matthew chapter 18, verses 23 to 27. The slave owed a great debt and pleading with the master for mercy, the master forgave him an unfathomable debt. Then that slave who had just been forgiven so much went out and he found somebody that owed him something. And he abused him. And when that person begged for forgiveness, the slave who had just been shown unbelievable mercy had none in his heart. At the end of the parable, beginning in verse 33, it says this, Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I have mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Verse 35 My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. I know this is hard to do because we're like the Pharisees. Lord, thank goodness I'm not like this person that just sinned against me. But before God, we are as guilty as they are And God has forgiven us an unlimited debt. Our sin against him deserved his wrath and punishment for eternity. And God forgave it all because of the blood of Christ. And all Paul is saying is how dare us if we don't forgive others immediately. Jesus forgave you, forgive one another. Well, okay, I may think about it if they grovel and if they repent and if they beg me to and if they acknowledge that I was right and they were wrong so as long as I get vindicated and proved right then I'll think about it that's not forgiveness at all you need the heart of Jesus as he was being killed Luke chapter 23 beginning at verse 33 when they came to the place called the skull there they crucified him and the criminals one on the right and the other on the left But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Did Jesus die for you after you were admitted you were wrong? Did He shed His blood for you only after you groveled and pleaded? We've already read it, but Romans 5, 8 makes it clear. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I realize this is hard. You can take it up with Jesus in prayer. It's not my words. But don't misunderstand. Is there no recourse for sin ever? Of course there is. In fact, Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17, tells us how to deal when another believer sins against us. There's a process that begins with showing them their fault in private, not broadcasting their fault on the Internet for everybody else to see. But that's different from whether you forgive them. That has to do with their repentance, not the forgiveness that you owe from your heart. In every case, you still forgive, not just when they repent so that you feel better about it, but you forgive when the offense has occurred. Again, sin has consequences. If your Christian employee steals from you, you forgive them from the heart immediately because you have compassion on them. But that doesn't mean you don't call the police. That doesn't mean they don't get fired. But it does mean that you still have care and concern for them, even if they have to pay the consequences for their sin. Really, it all comes back to our heart. What has God done for you He forgave you. He sent His Son to die for you. Not after you made amendment or atonement for what you did, but while you were in the midst of your sin. Just as you were forgiven, so you should forgive. Brings us to the final point of fostering unity in the body of Christ. First few others in the most favorable light possible. Second, be quick to forgive when others hurt you. Third, love other Christians despite their shortcomings. Love other Christians despite their shortcomings. Paul says this in verse 14, Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Again, when you look at all the behaviors that he's telling us, to put on before. Those are behaviors that we need when we have conflict, when believers are disappointing us, when they're hurting us, when they're sinning against us, when they give us reason to have a legitimate complaint against them. But he's saying beyond all those, we put all those on, but the most important thing, in fact, it's the thing that makes all the others possible, is to put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. How can you treat others in this counterintuitive manner, particularly those who are hurting you? Because of love. Because God loved us, we can love others and we're commanded to love other believers. Again, I've read it at least twice before. I'll add a verse to it. 1 John 4, 10 and 11. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's inescapable. There's no work around. There's no way around it. Love is everything when it comes to our relationship with other believers, particularly when they're sinning against us. Peter says this in First Peter four eight. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. It really determines whether you're in the faith at all, whether you love other believers. If all the other things I've said seem impossible to you, not because you're trying and you're just struggling and you're failing, but because you don't want to. I'm not going to do it. I don't care what the Bible says. You've got to question your heart. If you withhold love from other believers, you don't have genuine love for Jesus. Jesus said in John fourteen, fifteen, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And one of his commandments, as we've already read, is to love one another. The Apostle John puts it in stark terms in first John four, twenty and twenty-one. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. And again, we've got to be careful not to make our love conditional. Jesus powerfully rebuked and repudiated selfish love. Luke chapter 6 beginning at verse 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. If God calls us to live this way with our enemies to ungrateful and evil men, how much more so should we reflect these things to our brothers and sisters in Christ that's why this is the perfect bond of unity because nothing can separate us from the love of Christ and nothing should separate us from loving each other. This is our testimony to a lost and dying world. John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's time to examine your heart. Do you love other Christians? And not just when they love you, as Jesus said, sinners can do that. Do you love them when they hurt you? When they're unkind and ungracious to you? Without love, nothing in the church matters. 1 Corinthians thirteen one to 3. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. May that never be us here at Lakeside. Really, everything we've studied today is centered around our love for those whom God has chosen. He set His love upon them, so we should set our love upon them. May the words of Paul to the Corinthians be our reality here at Lakeside together as the chosen holy, beloved people of God. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 and following. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we understand the struggles of our heart. Lord, when people are treating us well, when things are going well, we understand that it's easy to love them. We can enjoy serving with them. We can enjoy seeing them on Sunday morning when everything's going well. Lord, work in our hearts when we sin against one another. Lord, help us in those times to put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Lord, help Lakeside be characterized as a place where we bear with one another and we quickly forgive one another even when we have legitimate complaints. Lord, we understand that we owe this duty because of the great love which You freely bestowed upon us. Lord, You chose us. You set Your love upon us. Not because of anything we did, but because You chose to do so for Your own purposes. Lord, help that truth make us humble. Help that truth Allow us to see others as those whom we can serve, not who are here for our convenience. And Lord, I pray for any who have grudges, for any who have lingering hurts, that you will help them overcome it, Lord. Not just because the other person does something, but because you worked in their heart and they forgive as they've been forgiven. Lord, I do pray for those who don't know you. Perhaps the truths of today reveal that that some aren't being truthful to themselves about loving you because they hate their brothers. Lord, I pray that you'd work in their hearts, open their eyes, and allow them to see that you love sinners and that if they'll place their faith in you, the blood of Jesus will be the propitiation for their sins. Lord, I pray that you will continue to work in each one of us to bring about the unity that will allow all the world to look at Lakeside and see those people love one another. They must be Jesus' disciples. We ask all of this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.